Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I am joined by my very special guest host, Christy Grant Hart. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Tom and Jay look at the following stories. This year's cheating scandal in baseball with takes by Stephanie Epstein and Alex Pruitt in Sports Illustrated, David Waldstein in the New York Times, and Buster Olney in ESPN.com. The EU Prosecutor's Office opens for business. John Rush tells us more in his Dipping Through Geometries blog. The Exxon Board of Directors vote should be a wake-up call. Jacqueline Jager and Compliance Week. Compliance when no one is watching. Julie DeMauro tells us more in the FCPA blog. What are five things that CCOs can do to comply with Biden's statement on corruption? Al Barbarina tells us more in Law 360. What do pirates teach us about leadership? Francesca Gino and the Experts League. Should CCOs run ESG? Mike Volkov answers with a resounding no in his corruption, crime, and compliance blog. Is your supply chain ethical? Andrew Blasi and Nicholas Diamond tell us in CCI. What are some of the reasons for the lack of FCPA enforcement? Harry Kasson speculates in his FCPA blog. And get on one page for risk management with Sandra Eretz, also in CCI. Podcast webinars and an update on Tom's (laughs) upcoming book. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 257 for the week ending, June 18, 2021, the more cheating in baseball edition with the Los Angeles Dodgers leading the MLB in cheating. Jay is back from moving. He and uh, I are shocked, just shocked, that there's yet another cheating scandal in baseball. While ruminating on just how shocked we are, We also take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our eye. So, Jay, uh, shall we start? Yeah, and let me just get this um, sunscreen and rosin off my hand so I can uh, key the keyboard. And uh, why don't you take it from there, Tom? So, Jay, uh, we've had rumblings of yet another scandal in baseball, and it really erupted over the last week or so. I wrote about it, so I thought we would talk about it. And this cheating involves not our beloved Houston Astros or Boston Red Sox, uh, who won the 2017 and 2018 World Series, respectively, beating the now cheating Los Angeles Dodgers. But it involves pitchers, pitchers across the league. And what the pitchers are doing, much like Jay was doing, is are putting uh, suntan lotion, sticky goop, pine tar, and other sticky materials on their hands so that they can grip the baseball better so they can get something called their spin rate to increase. And the spin rate uh, can dramatically move uh, a baseball up and down and side to side as much as 25%. This has led in 2021 
to the lowest uh, batting average in the major league since 1967. And 1967 was the all-time low. Uh, David Wallstein wrote about it in the New York Times, Buster Olney in uh, ESPN.com, and uh, uh, SI, or rather, uh, Stephanie Epstein and uh, Alex Pruitt wrote about it in Sports Illustrated. And it really, all of those articles, Jay, talked about the reason, uh, uh, first of all, what the issue is, and that's the spin rate I was talking about. They talked about the reason pitchers are doing it and uh, the response of Major League Baseball. The reason the pitchers are doing it is about as straightforward as it can get anything for a competitive edge, even though it was against the rules. And Major League Baseball is now faced with its really third existential scandal since the 90s, starting with the steroid era of the 1990s. And then, of course, the um, sign-stealing scandals that embroiled uh, our favorite teams. And now we've got the pitchers. So Major League Baseball, uh, what does Major League Baseball do in these situations? Well, they issue a memo. And so they sent a memo to all the teams saying that uh, this was has always been illegal. And uh, whether we allowed it or looked the other way before, we're not going to look the other way again. But we're not going to actually enforce this. The umpires have to enforce this. And the umpires are going to have to check out the pitchers. They're going to have to check out their gloves. They're going to check out their uh, equipment, their hats. I don't know if they're going to check out their bodies, but um, uh, wherever pitchers can put uh, the aforementioned sunscreen and pine tar. So um, the the scandal has really uh, caused uh, a now existential crisis because of the hitting. And I think it was Epstein and Pruitt pointed out that in the era of uh, social media and the era of uh, limited attention spans of millennials, in the era of people wanting to see hitting, not um, 10 to 12 strikeouts per game, uh, this is really causing baseball some problems. Of course, the issue has always been, as with was steroids and the sign stealing, uh, MLB knew about it and they did nothing. And I'm not sure if that's because of the structure where the owners hire the commissioner and the commissioner reports to the owners and the owners don't want to do anything or uh, there's something else going on here, but uh, it was um, basically allowed to occur during baseball. Uh, the managers allowed it, the general managers allowed it, the field managers allowed it, certainly the pitchers encouraged it. Uh, the hitters really couldn't do anything about it. Um, so it's gonna be interesting, I think, Jay, to see whether or not MLB does anything uh, and actually enforces these rules. Already, we've had some pitchers complain, uh, well, you know, you change the rules in midseason. That's not true because the rule was always there. They changed the enforcement of the rule. Uh, one pitcher injured his elbow because he couldn't grip the ball as well as he did. Uh, spin rates have gone down, and over the past couple of weeks, actually, batting averages have started to creep back up. So whether MLB is serious about this or not um, is an open question. Uh, several uh, commentators, um, Buster Olney, I think, probably led the charge as one of the most respected baseball sports writers these days, is um, uh, questioning whether you know MLB will actually move forward to try to do something about this. From uh, the left coast, what are your thoughts on this cheating scandal in baseball, Jay? 
Well, it kind of crept up on me, Tom, because I've been in moving limbo the last month or so, but I just couldn't believe uh, when you sent the articles out this morning. And uh, I think the thing that really is disappointing is that this even goes all the way down into the minor leagues. And, um, you know, when you wrote your uh, trifecta of articles this week, you talked about, you know, what happens if we were looking at this at a company and what would a CCO do to combat this? And these are three major ethics failures by baseball, steroids, uh, using technology to cheat, and now gripping the ball. And I'm just wondering, how many more chances do you get to go back to your fans? Because these uh, last few years have been really tarnished, and it doesn't look like uh, the commissioner and the uh, folks who are policing MLB have the cojones to do what they need to wrestle their game back to themselves. And Jay, that's a, that's a great point in terms of, I think, and, and I wrote about this, I think you can look to compliance for the solution, uh, whether you implement that or not is obviously a different story, but it does have to start at the top. And if MLB and the owners are not willing to enforce the rules, uh, uh, I mean, Trevor Bauer, who is the poster child of this right now, because he's been pretty open about what he's doing. Also a Los Angeles Dodger, I would note. Um, he said that uh, there shouldn't be any rules around this. It should be open game. Now, batters want pitchers to have some grip because they're the ones facing now 100-mile-an-hour bullets coming at their head in the form of baseballs if it's not gripped properly. Uh, and, and batters want pitchers to have some control, but if the control is so great that you can move your pitch 25% more uh, while throwing a 100-mile-an-hour slider, uh, that makes it well-nigh impossible to hit. So I hope baseball will actually enforce this rule and uh, bring some clarity to it, but uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait to see. All right, let's use that as a jumping-off point to go across the pond. Uh, first article this week uh, from John Rush and his wonderful blog, Dipping Through Ge Geometries. And the EU prosecutor's office opens for business. For some time, the European Union has grappled with how to best combat financial crime directed at its budget. As part of that effort, it has been making use of pre-existing government bodies, such as Europol, Eurojust, and the European Anti-Fraud Fraud Office. This EU entity investigates fraud against the EU budget, corruption, and serious misconduct within the European Union. Uh, institutions. To date, however, the combined efforts of these agencies have not been making sufficient headway in combating crimes against the EU budget. In 2019, the European Court of Auditors, ECA, issued a report that was highly critical of the European Commission's existing approach to EU budget fraud. Among other concerns, it found that between 2002 and 2016, Fraud had taken at least $8.8 .8 from the EU budget, and that the Olaf's administrative investigations had led to prosecutions in fewer than half of its cases. The ECA, however, also called attention to the creation of the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which is abbreviated as EPPO, a new EU entity established in 2017 with powers to investigate and prosecute crimes against the EU financial interests. The ECA called the EPO's establishment a step in the right direction, 
and noted it would begin operations in 2020. Although the setup of EPO took longer than initially expected, on June 1st, it formally launched its operations and offices in Luxembourg. And the EPO's mandate is to investigate, prosecute, and bring to judgment crimes against the EU budget. The organization already faces a considerable body of work with some 3,000 cases submitted to it. The first new reports for alleged fraud against the EU budget submitted for Germany and Italy came within hours of the organization online reporting system going live. At the outset, EPO is focusing on the use of EU funds for purposes other than their original intent. In a recent media interview, the chief prosecutor, Laura Caruda Covesi, acknowledged that EPO had no authority to issue offenses committed in non-EU countries unless the alleged fraud was a clear connection with one of the 22 country participants. As she put it, we can look to see if there's a link with a member state, but otherwise it will depend on national prosecutors and the European Anti-Fraud Office, OLAF. Some fairly early successes would certainly be helpful in EPO's case, but the complexity of the cases it will be pursuing makes quick successes, unfortunately, highly unlikely. Tom, back to you. So Jay, next we have an article by our good friend, uh, Jacqueline Jager, over at uh, Compliance Week, who looked at the Exxon Board of Directors vote. And uh, this is the one where Exxon's four proposed directors, three lost to uh, the shareholders in really just a devastating defeat for uh, Exxon. And, and she talks about it as a wake-up call for companies. And I, the reason I wanted to talk about her article is that she really listed some key lessons learned. And uh, it starts with, you know, listening to your shareholders, no surprise there. But um, beyond that, Company simply uh, having a climate plan in place is really no longer enough. They want to see uh, senior management and the board making a meaningful commitment to climate-focused strategies and then following through on that commitment. And that uh, companies should be engaged with their largest shareholders on a regular basis. And this was a complaint by CalPERS and some of the other institutional shareholders that basically Exxon wouldn't talk to them. So companies need to be engaged with their shareholders. They need to be hearing their concerns. And uh, rarely is an activist campaign based on something the board hasn't heard about before. And certainly uh, the investors tried to um, talk to Exxon. So uh, some really good points from Jacqueline. Of course, she summarizes uh, the facts, as always, very co coherently. But I think it's the lessons learned that boards uh, and senior management of companies need to uh, be articulating. What's up next, Jay? Uh, next up is the first of two from the FCPA blog. Uh, a friend who we haven't heard from in a while, Julie DeMauro, talks to us about compliance when no one is watching. Most of us feel like we are in Teams and Zoom calls all day long, so it might sound silly if Julie talks about times of the day when no one is watching. Knowing everyone has those moments, how do we motivate employees to do the right thing when nobody is watching? Isn't it the true test of a compliance program, the fact that people are reporting suspicions, pausing before acting, and even admitting mistakes well before they become compliance issues? The incentives for taking the time and maybe putting oneself in a position to be proven wrong or even reprimanded for a mistake 
must be clear and the advantages must outweigh the disadvantages. For this reason, suspicious activity reports must be easy to access and use, and there should be a component of performance review that includes a section on adhering to the rules and values of the organization. It's not optional. It's a critical piece of how an employee is evaluated for being effective in her job, whether she's a manager or not. This is why compliance professionals must be accessible and why they should consider sending out periodic messaging about where to locate rules, training, and hotlines. Furthermore, they should also consider spotlighting those employees that get it right. Joe got a phishing email and promptly told us it, allowing IT team to examine the issue and get in front of it. And Janet found aberrations in vendor invoices, told us about it early, enabling us to investigate the matter promptly. The onboarding period for new employees seems like a great time to set expectations and to stress the importance of following rules and encouraging reaching out to, the, to reach the compliance team, plus a decent one to get them thinking about performance metrics. Finally, what about small reminders posted in the hallways and common areas placed on shared internal documents and sites and short video clips? Not much gets our attention these days, so grab that compliance meme to use with your messaging. Just don't let them forget that the compliance is a shared obligation. And you know what I'm gonna say, even when no one else is watching. Back to you, Tom. So Jay, next up we have an article from Al Barbarino writing in Law 360, and it is uh, dealing with five ways companies can prep for uh, President Biden's anti-corruption campaign or corruption as a national security issue. And once again, this really helps, focuses on the compliance professional and in-house type. So I thought it was a really good uh, article. Um, the five points are check your cybersecurity risks. Obviously, cyber is at the top of mind now after solar winds last year and more recently, Colonial Pipeline and McDonald's. So what are your cyber risks? Check those out and be ready to fill in the data gaps from the June 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the Department of Justice talked about uh, breaking down your data silos and the pandemic, I think, really put data and um, data athleticism, I'm gonna steal a term from Jonathan Marks there, to um, uh, right in the forefront of every compliance program. So make sure there are no uh, gaps in your the data you have access to. Next, FCPA and AML training. It's time for some refresher training. You might want to call up Ronnie Feldman at Learnings Entertainment and get some entertaining bursts of information and not simply long training videos or presentations. Um, next up, the post-pandemic assessment. Jay, as you'll recall, the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance program said that uh, you should assess your risks when your risks change. Obviously, in June 2020, our risks had changed because we were all working from home after uh, the country was shut down. Well, now that's even changing, and, and many people are going back to work. So return to work, how has that changed your risks? Uh, have you onboarded new people who've never actually worked in your office during the last year? Are you going to hire a large number of employees now, and because of uh, many people are rethinking how they want to work. If you're going to force people to come back to the office, you may have a new kind of a new crew on board. So uh, uh, assess your risks from uh, uh, where you were this time last year. And then finally, follow the money. 
the fight against bribery and corruption dovetails exactly into uh, the fight against money laundering. And we had the uh, anti-money laundering law of 2020 passed January 1, 2021. And uh, there's certainly going to be new reforms coming around money laundering. It's going to start in the financial industry, but it's going to move to private corporations and corporations which are publicly owned. Uh, subject to SEC regulation. So uh, take a look at this article and figure out what you can do, and more importantly, uh, what you need to. So Jay, before we get to our next story, I have to ask in preparing for today's podcast and reading this article, did you think of dodgeball? Maybe a little bit, yeah. (laughs) So this is... uh, this is my favorite article that are my five today, and we're going to find out what do pirates teach us about leadership. This article comes to us from Francesca Gino, writing in the Experts League blog. We usually associate pirates with violence, theft, and mayhem, all indisputably true. But what we may not think about, however, is how someone like Blackbeard was so effective at inspiring and commanding his crews. Pirates, it turns out, were forward-thinking in a number of surprising and instructive ways. And here are three that stand out as raising interesting implications for leadership. First off, everyone has an equal voice. For many sailors on the open sea, merchant shift for a floating dictatorship. With the blessing of the vessel's owner, the captain treated crewmen as he saw fit, often harshly. Sailors were beaten, overworked, underpaid, and sometimes starved. Morale was low, dissent was punished as mutiny. Pirates, by contrast, practice a revolutionary form of democracy. To keep the ship running smoothly for months on end and discourage revolt, pirates voted on who should be captain, set limits on his power, and guaranteed crew members a say in the ship's affairs. Second, a sense of ownership is powerful. Any pirate could large complaints or concerns without fear of reprisal, as crew members were protected by articles, essentially a constitution drafted for each ship. The articles were formulated democratically and required unanimous agreement before an expedition launched. They set the rights and duties of the crew, the rules for handling disputes, and incentives and insurance payments to ensure bravery in battle and compensate injured crewmen. Last point, what matters is skills and commitment, not background. As they sailed the high seas, pirates picked up mariners from different races, religions, and ethnicities, which made for a cosmopolitan crew. Though slavery was common on the land, for example, at sea, Black pirates had the right to vote, were entitled to an equal share of the booty, could bear arms, and were even elected captains of crews. Individual pirates were valued for their competence and hard work. Their background and skin color were irreverent. Would your cruise ship choose you to lead? No matter our industry or role, we all face a choice of how to lead at work, in our relationships, on our teams, and in our companies. We can brandish our job title, focus on our own accomplishments, or command attention with a booming voice, or we can choose to think like a pirate, ensuring that every person on our team shall have an equal vote in the affairs of the moment. According to one study, more than 800 employees, those with a strong sense of ownership in their organizations, 
were more committed, satisfied, and productive. When ownership of both ideas and problems becomes shared rather than concentrated in the hands of a few, workers and their organizations thrive. Pirate captains served at the pleasure of their crew, which meant they understood they had to earn the trust of their crewmates. Our work lives would be dramatically differently, different if we embrace the same way of thinking, asking ourselves on a day-to-day basis the same question that Blackbird, excuse me, Blackbeard did. Am I the captain that my crew would choose as its leader? This powerful question can center our attention and energy on the very conditions that will help everyone on our crew thrive and make conquests that matter. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up we have an interesting article from our colleague, Mike Volkoff. Mike's a panelist on everything compliance. And he says that CEOs, excuse me, CCOs, uh, really should not be the leaders of a corporate ESG effort. As you know, Jay, I'm, I'm pretty uh, passionate about my advocacy that compliance function needs to take over or run uh, ESG and CCOs really need to take the lead in this. But Mike sees it a little bit differently. He says that uh, CCOs have too much to do already and that CCOs are stewards of a company's culture as directed by ethics and compliance standards. And uh, it's one thing to set a crap craft a set of compliance programs, uh, having efficient operation of controls, but it's quite another to be responsible for uh, the ESG function. He does note that uh, ESG does have, or compliance does have a role as an integral player in ESG, and that, of course, is or rather in the G function, uh, but that's really where he sees it ending. So, um, Mike really uh, advocates uh, something that uh, perhaps I'm not sure your views on this, Jay, but I, I believe the compliance function shouldn't lead this effort, but Mike really takes it uh, the other direction. So I wanted to, to uh, have this article and uh, in, engage in the debate with Mike. Back over to you. So do we need to put you up against each other like Lincoln Douglas here, like uh, like? Tyson and somebody else first knockout to figure out who runs ESG. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, first of two from Corporate Compliance Insights, we ask, is your supply chain ethical? This article comes to us from Andrew Blasey and Nicholas Diamond. While many organizations go to great lengths to monitor their physical supply chain, their data supply chain often gets short shrift. For any company interacting with large sets and various streams of data, this can represent a significant risk exposure. Since the first investigations under the US FCPA concerning third parties acting on behalf of US companies was initiated almost 40 years ago, upholding integrity in the global supply chains has garnered attention. Rightfully so, as compounding risks in physical production and movement of goods abound upstream, for example, forced labor, labor, conflict, minerals, environmental impact, and all which include bribery, fraud, and misuse. Not only have these risks accounted for a sizable portion of the nearly $30 billion in sanctions paid in FCPA enforcement actions, but they are the source of immeasurable costs, legal fees, reputational impact, and market loss. But what about the data supply chain? 
Global enterprises regularly collect, manage, and share data throughout their business operations, as well as through partnerships and requests for external researchers. Just as business integrity risk can flow from human activities and the physical supply chain, so too can they flow from underlying human activities and the data supply chain. There are four key components to consider in maintaining integrity of your data supply chain. Number one, is the data that your company collects directly or through vendors ethically sourced? Two, is the data that your company has already collected being properly maintained and utilized? Three, is the data your company shares with others directly or through vendors ethically constituted? How will your company avoid sharing unethical data? And four, what are the ethical values driving how your company chooses to retain or dispose data? The consequences of ignoring these factors could be significant, encompassing both specific legal risks as well as reputational damage and market loss. It is possible that businesses, both individually and across entire industrial sectors, may face considerable penalties and possibly even lose their social license to use data through a severe loss in trust. So how can businesses respond? Businesses need a strong and constantly improving framework to predict, assess, and manage ethical risks in their data supply chain. To implement the ethical frameworks, it's also likely that many businesses will need to enhance demands with data vendors, even those with significant market power. Businesses will also need to successfully communicate and advocate the importance of the data supply chain on innovation and improving quality of life for everyone across society. Businesses can demonstrate and partner with government and other stakeholders to strive for this balance, rather than responding to challenges by overly limiting the efficacy of the data supply chain. It's just too important to forego. So getting a head start on a strong ethical framework to mitigate consequences of ethical laughs will provide a notable advantage. Back to you, Tom. Jay, uh, this is our second article from the FCPA blog. Harry Casson, uh, the publisher and editor, wrote about why uh, three reasons he believes uh, FCPA corporate enforcement uh, may have stalled. Uh, number one, new agenda, obviously with a new administration, the focus of criminal and seminal civil enforcement evolves. And with the White House gearing up uh, for a big initiative to fight corruption, perhaps things uh, are going to explode onto the scene at some point. Two, a Goldman Sachs size shadow. And I thought this one was a little bit interesting, Jay. Uh, Goldman Sachs paid over $3.3 billion to settle anti-corruption offenses related to the 1MDB scandal. And it's by far the largest FCPA settlement. And he's wondering if this uh, large number has really thrown a shadow over um, other companies that may have substantial settlements. And the third one is that there is um, uh, more time or a greater desire to renegotiate. So once again, this relates to the change in administration. Uh, uh, department heads and political appointees are not always in place. So perhaps some companies are seeing this as an opportunity for wiggle room, um, another shot at earning some credit if the investigation didn't start off on the right foot. So some interesting reasons uh, from Harry Casson. I'm not too fussed about uh, the lack of and announced enforcement actions, Jay. Uh, it's over the, the last 10 years that I've been involved in this area. 
it certainly ebbed and flowed, and uh, it may be ebbing a little bit, but I expect a, a flow to pick back up. Tom, as promised, here's the second of two stories from Corporate Compliance Insights. Uh, we're going to hear from Sandy Eretz, and she's going to talk about getting on one page for risk management. Almost every move that we make is determined by a risk assessment, from jet skiing without a life jacket to parking momentarily in a no parking zone. Our, we make daily decisions by weighing risks against benefits. When it comes to assessing the risk of money laundering in the financial sector, the highly calibrated risk assessing processors can seem inadequate. Despite having years of practice for firms to get it right, we are privy to an endless parade of financial institutions mired in the astonishing magnitude of their muddled customer due diligence, CDD. In 2020, banks worldwide paid a collective $15.13 billion in fines for a range of compliance failures. A scandal can serve as a good scare tactic in that it sends fear shivering through boards of directors, reminding them that AML noncompliance can be a risky business in a shifting sea of regulatory enforcement. Every time huge fines rain down from regulators on an errant firm, compliance officers suddenly remember to huddle under their colorful tick-the-box compliance umbrellas so they can hire more staff and scribble new AML policies. It appears there's a huge disconnect between compliant customer due diligence controls and the ability to assess the money laundering risk off of the back on back of that process. The resolution to the quandary requires a deep dive into a swirling vortex of the CDD black hole. Grounded in a risk-based approach, AML legislation best practices place a high importance on CDD processes as a primary gatekeeper in the prevention of financial crime. But although financial institutions may be putting their best foot forward to stay compliant with AML and CDD regulations, the same faulty human decision-making processes, miscalculating risk when focusing on an immediate outcome, is replicated when it comes to CDD execution. Employees and employers alike are interested in Swifty onboard clients. In short, KYC, know your customer, and CDD process is vulnerable both at the staff level, where people by their nature are prone to break rules, as well as on the board management level, where the human appetite for greed and power will always directly conflict with organizational risk appetite. At the same time, the difficulty in accurately assessing the multiple intertwined layers of risk can become even more overwhelming when inconsistent verification standards with the firm result in poor quality data sets. Weighing the risk against the benefit under stringent AML controls means asking the right questions in order to avoid doing complementary, rather completely unnecessary checks. But at the same time, it also means knowing when not to cut corners. The only way to achieve that delicate balance is to implement a data-rich centralized solution that is inherently customizable to any firm's workflow. The quintessential tool would be anchored in conditional logic where relevant queries and requests for information would appropriately unfold during the CDD process as the system is dynamically generated in overall risk rating. 
as the rising tide of money laundering crime engulfs regulators across the globe, they are digging in and clawing their way to the top by upping the ante. No one is safe from their oversight for the little accounting firms to those offshore lounging on their yachts. As for you, the casual doer of diligence wandering around bewildered in the CDD maze, be weird. The ultimate responsibility for onboarding that risky client is still on you and your firm. Perhaps in addition to verifying your clients, you should verify your need for a risk-based approach to CDD solution before someone high up goes over the head and heels and falls overboard. That's the last story, Tom. What do we got for podcasts and webinars this week? Well, Jay, it was a, a great podcast week on the Compliance Podcast Network. I premiered a new podcast, the ESG Report. Uh, and as the title suggests, I'm going to be looking at all things ESG, including why compliance needs to lead that effort. Uh, in the first episode, I had a two-part series featuring Tricia Dascom. She's the head of ESG at Silver. Uh, we posted Tuesday and Thursday of this week. Uh, Tricia is just a fabulous resource for all regulated companies around ESG. So check out uh, the ESG report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, next, we start a series I've wanted to do for some time on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I'm always interested in how history informs compliance and leadership lessons from history. Well, uh, Richard Lummis and I are taking a look in a special 10-part podcast series based upon Plutarch's lives of famous Greeks and Romans. In episode one, we looked at uh, leadership lessons and compliance lessons from Themistocles and Camillus. Uh, this week, posting uh, episode two on uh, the Greek Solon and the Roman Popsicola. So uh, if you're interested in history, uh, we Richard and I love to talk about history. And if you're interested in the Greeks and Romans, as we both are, I hope you will check out that series. Um, it's the summer, so Trekking Through Compliance has returned. Uh, this week's episodes included The Conscience of a King, Balance of Terror, one of my absolute favorites, Shore Leave, The Galileo 7, and The Squire of Gothos. What do you have for us, Jay? Well, this week on the AMI podcast, Integrity Through Compliance, AMI's founder and president, Vin DiCiani, turns the table on our very own Tom Fox and interviews him about his life and career in compliance uh, how he got started, and how to keep things fresh. So we have a link to the uh, show notes and to the podcasts uh, in our show notes. Also, please join Conversant for a Converge Innovation Forum with a look into the future of compliance on risk visibility up, down, and across the business. This takes place on June 23rd at 11 a.m. Central Time. And again, we will link to the uh, registration and the information in our show notes. And now we have um, a K2 uh, event coming up on July 1st. Please join K2 Integrity's uh, Snezana Gebauer and Darren Matthews, who present a webinar on asset tracing at the IBA Global Influencer Forum. And uh, you'll see the link to sign up. And as we've been uh, telling you in these months, uh, we're getting very close. Tom announces his latest book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition. It's now available for pre-sale purchase. And to our listeners, if you use the code FOX25 and click the link, 
you can get uh, your copy uh, reserved of the Compliance Handbook, and you also get a handy-dandy 25% discount. Uh, if any of you would like to reach Tom, who is the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So uh, on behalf of both of us, uh, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us and taking a look at the week in FCPA episode 257 for the week ending June 18th, 2021, the I Can't Believe There's More Cheating in Baseball edition. We appreciate you spending time with us this week, and we look forward to speaking to you next week when we take a look at the week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.